Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Maxine Beneba-Clark. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. As we get started, also, you might have noticed the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast has been, uh, well, there hasn't been a proper episode for a week or two. That is because 2SER, the parent station of this show, has been having its radiothon. If you are a local listener, if you are an international listener and you caught up, if you went online and you became a supporter, thank you so much. It makes it possible to do what we do when we know you're supporting us. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. I want to acknowledge that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Maxine Beneba-Clark is an author of short fiction, non-fiction and poetry. She won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Poetry in 2017 for her collection Carrying the World. Her short story collection Foreign Soil masterfully captures voices from marginalised communities and it won the Arbia for Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Indie Book Award for Debut Fiction that same year in 2015. Maxine now has a new collection. It's called How Decent Folk Behave. And once again, it highlights her ear for voices, her ability to tell stories and to bring so many different people together with empathy and with insight. This book explores everything we've been going through in the world, but it takes it from a place of hope. I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. Maxine has even generously agreed to read a poem from the collection. So join me as we discover Maxine Beneba-Clark's How Decent Folk Behave. Maxine, welcome. This, this poetry collection has taken me places. It's, it's destroyed me and put me back together. It's so great to have you here to chat. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It is so terrific to have you here today. Just so many reasons. I've, I feel like I owe you something for just the last week of reading How Decent Folk Behave. I at least owe you, you have got my wife reading poetry, which oh, wonderful. <laughs> she is a, she is a terrific reader, but she just yeah. doesn't read poetry. And it was one night this week and I'd been reading and I, you've, you absolutely destroyed me with something sure. And I said, I have to read you this poem. And, and so I read the poem to her and I'm, I'm like sobbing because this is just, this is just an incredibly emotional poem. And um, did you know your face can hurt for like a day afterwards when you cry? <laughs> Um, I think I'm tearing up just thinking about it. And my wife, because I was cooking dinner, my wife just sort of took the book and she was just like, oh. And she read the next one and she's like, this yeah. one's good too, isn't it? And I'm like, no, no, where the bookmark is is where I'm at. You don't. <laughs> so, yes, thank you so much for that. I think, um, I think that, yeah, that is going to be something wonderful that I can share more poetry with her. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's always a good creating people, creating new readers for poetry is always incredible. How Decent Folk Behave is a stunning collection that powerfully responds to the world, to world events through voices living within the stories that we too often only see in our headlines. I had so many reactions while reading How Decent Folk Behave, and I doubt I have the eloquence to comp- 
convey them solely through my questions alone. So I was hoping we could start. Would you be willing to share one of the poems from the collection and give the listeners a bit of a taste? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The poem I'll read is titled Something Sure. Sit down here now, baby. Stop that fidgeting. Listen big and understand. Mama's got to school you about something sure before you grow into a man. Now, Hannah Clark, she died today. We don't know her from soap, it's true. She's the one in the papers whose ex burn her up as she's driving the kids to school. Yeah, he pour petrol on three little ones and kill them angels too. Hurts my heart to think on it, so baby, mama needs to know that a good man, the man you'll grow to be, can lead a bad man home. Do you know to say, nah, don't do that, mate? Oh, that's not fucking right, you heard her. Take your hand off her shoulder and how about you and I call it a night? I know you're young and I taught you well how decent folk behave. But if the time comes, every woman is your mama when it comes to saving. Like if she on the street and he smell like trouble, getting right up close and in her face, or some colleague in the lunchroom saying, that damn bitch took my babies. If his veins all popping, fists all clenched, and his eyes are still as death, will you call it out or call it in now, baby? Trust your gut and use your head. We women mostly got each other's backs, but sometimes busy just surviving, set up against the acid throwers, hands gripped round throats, locked doors and petrol fires. And every two minutes, the state is called to deal with domestic violence. But a boy like you could grow to make a difference if you try. Like if you say, I'm going to make a pay, a man like you could remind him. About the time the twins were born, when he came in late, could not stop smiling, saying, man, her back was arched in agony, but she wasn't screaming, eh? Just got our bubs here safely. Shit, I won't forget today. See, Hannah and them kids died brutal. We don't know them all from soap, but it aches my soul to muse on it. So, babe, your mama needs to know that a good man Exactly the man you'll be will lead a bad man home. Um, so when I first read the collection, I think my strongest reaction came from that poem, Something Sure. And it's, it's in the moment where the mother is talking to her son, um, talks about him being a good man, becoming a good man, and having the strength to lead a bad man home. It, it was confronting and I, I, my first thought was I think every man needs to read this um, because I don't think there is a single one of us that we would within ourselves. You ask any man, I think they would, they would say they have the ideal that they are the good man. Um, but I don't think there's a single one of us that could say we've always stood up or spoke up when other men have been talking trash um, on, on women in their lives or women in general. Um, and, and that felt so powerful because... I don't, I don't see in the society around us men having the self-awareness to know the ideal of the good man and the bad man, the behaviour that they sometimes display, that it exists. How important was this challenge to you, that, that putting, this, putting this in these words? Look, it was really important to me. And I think this poem, you know, part of the reason that the, the title of the book is taken from this line in this poem is... You know, it felt like in me to a poem that was full of both despair and hope. Um, you know, the place that it was written from was almost, 
you know, this was written, you know, after the death of Hannah Clark and, and countless other women from domestic violence. Um, and, you know, it was written almost of a sense with maybe we can't save ourselves, but can we save our daughters you know, and what do we need to do to turn this around for them? Well, we need to talk to our sons. You know, this is a, a situation where everybody needs to be involved. Um, you know, not that I don't think this poem is something that grown men should be reading, but just that idea that, you know, you plant that seed early on, I think, was really important to me. This is a topic that is incredibly and hotly debated at the moment. I mean, we have um, we have all of these discussions around what is and isn't and what should and shouldn't be taught to children. And usually the discussion that's coming from, I guess, a more conservative place of children shouldn't be exposed to these things talks about, um, I guess, sort of an idyllic world where, where children are somehow going to be protected from these things if we can just keep our mouths shut, if we can just mm-hmm. not, don't, uh, you know, it reminds me, I don't know if you grew up with faulty towers, but the whole don't mention the war yeah. type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, that seems like a naivety and the, the mother in your poem seems like an ideal to aspire to because inevitably children are exposed to these things, but we have the power to help them understand. And uh, I, that was a really powerful thing that came through in that poem. Yeah. I mean, I think that my practice has very much been changed a lot by the fact that about four years ago, one of my books was book listed for VCE in Victoria. So for year 12 literature, there was a book called Foreign Soil, a book of short fiction featuring primarily African diaspora characters. And so I had about two years pre-pandemic of going in and out of year 12 classrooms, speaking to kind of 16 to 18-year-olds. And because this is a book which does deal with, you know, racism, with partner violence, with colonisation, with, you know, rioting and protesting and things like that, um, that I never intended when I wrote it. I could, did not cross my mind it could end up in a high school. You know, it just kind of was like a book for adults. Um, and realising both how much kids are already exposed to, I mean, these obviously are older kids, they're teenagers, but how much they want to engage with the world and that when you put something in front of them that engages with what they've witnessed or what they've heard their friends talk about, even not my be a difficult subject the fact that it's suddenly in literature and in a story kind of opens up all these avenues to talk about it in a way that maybe you wouldn't talk about it if you saw a report on the news or if you heard something on the radio you'd just kind of watch it and then move on to the next thing and so yeah the discussions with young people and realizing that you know this is stuff that they're seeing on a daily basis um and, and experiencing, you know, we know from statistics that children are experiencing this and seeing their friends experience it, yeah. Can we have, like, a, can you expand a little on that? Like, I was really fascinated by what you are saying there like, about a uni- almost a universalising power of literature. If if you see something on the news, it almost sounds like, you know, it's it's easier to, to distance or other. That's something that happened to someone somewhere else. But when it's in literature, it, it's a part of a universal discussion. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a there's a short fiction piece I wrote in the book for Unsoiled, which is the book that's book listed, and the story is called Harlem Jones, and it's about a young black teenager, seventeen year old, living in London at the time of the 2011 London riots, mm. and these were riots which were precipitated by the shooting death of a black man, but 
they ended up almost being a class movement. You know, these were young disenfranchised kids from all different backgrounds, just kind of smashing up a, a city. And so I, I kind of wrote, had this thing of well, what's happened to that kid, you know, that morning, that month, that year for him to actually end up at a riot holding a Molotov cocktail. So that's kind of what this story is about. Um, and once you unpack that with kids, it's not just about, um, you know, if you see a news report, it's kind of, okay, well, I know that this place is going, go, this, this thing is going on. But once you have a character going through it, kids are kind of going, did he do the right thing? You know, well, his life is really hard and those kids are really disenfranchised. And, you know, was this the right thing to do? And even, you know, some teenagers will, I went to one school and the character who's a black British teenager has this Anglo British friend and this kid said to me, Miss, you know, which is weird to be called Miss because I'm not actually a teacher, but he said, Miss, why is Harlem Jones friends with Toby? Like Toby just, he just feels like they wouldn't be friends and just like was super invested in mm. these two kids, you know, black kid and white kid that go to the riot together. And so, yeah, just kind of these, yeah, I think literature allows you to expand on those bare facts that, you know, this happened and, you know, we kind of move on and it kind of allows you to think, well, where do I sit in this? Which character am I? What do I actually think about this? Yeah. It sounds like an extraordinary experience to go and actually speak to these, these you know, high school groups. And I wanted to talk a little bit about audience because, you know, when you say these kids are engaged – that's, I mean, I, I feel like poetry is one of those polarizing things where you're just like, you are incredibly invested or it's this thing that someone made you read once and you yeah. will run a mile before you have to do it again. Um, and I was really curious about like where this sits in Australia. So I found some figures from the Australia Council for the Arts. For, these are 2016 figures, but it suggested only about 10% of Australians read poetry. And I say only there, but I, I actually was like, oh, that's a bit higher than I assumed. Yeah, I would have thought, I would have thought, yeah, it was lower as well. But, you know, like poetry is everywhere around us. Poetry is in the music we listen to. Poetry is in, you know, the jingles that get put on ad campaigns, the the ways we use lyricism to engage with people. Now, I I also found a, a, a profile of you from, I think it was about 2014, that described you as a slam poetry champion. So I wondered, like, the different ways poetry exists. How do you like to experience it and how, like, do you like to engage others in it? Yeah, it's interesting you refer to kind of music. You know, people often ask, well, what were you reading? What got you into poetry? And, you know, I I think that the I always feel very old saying this, but the thing about music being digitised is you miss out on lyric sheets. So, you know, in the age of the CD or the cassette tape, you would get these beautifully designed little lyric books that had, you know, the, the lyrics to all of mm. the, the songs. And I remember as a kid just pouring over them. And, you know, it would be partly because when you went out with your friends, or this, you wanted to be able to sing the lyrics and, yep. you know, um, and partly just kind of, learning how to tell a story in short form. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was listening to like Arrested Development and Tracy Chapman and, mm. you know, um, I was remembering the other day, my, the first cassette tape I ever saved up for was Bobby Brown's 1988 album, Don't Be Cruel. Oh, and wow. It's, 
It's terrible. It's a terrible album. Do you remember there was that period? I think it was it was either late eighties or early nineties where the lyrics sheets went from being kind of typed things to be they sort of all had to have that handwritten on a notepad li- yes, line scratched absolutely. out. So absolutely. That everything felt like someone's um, you know, like bad journal kind of yeah, confession. Not like a zine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, you know, I agree that when we say, you know, often if I go to a school, I'll say, who 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 reads poetry regularly or who consumes poetry regularly? Mm. No one will put their hand up. And I'll, you know, I'll say, okay, who recognizes this? And I'll say, hello from the other side. And then I'll go, it's a down, it's a down, you know. I'll say, well, do you do you see that as poetry? You know? Um, and so yeah, I, I think I think, you know, a lot a lot more people should read traditional poetry in the book format. But I think, you know, that conception of what poetry is probably needs to be broader. And yeah, I started out at the microphone and had many years where I wasn't really publishing on the page. I was just performing spoken word. I have. Yeah. I, so many, so many places that poetry pops up. I recall like I'm, obsessed with when I go for walks now listening to narrative podcasts and the one that I'm listening to at the moment I think is called um see you in your nightmares and it's about a woman who can jump between people's nightmares and one of the nightmares she jumped into they had to use like um basically kind of dropping rhymes to defeat the monster and and the monster the monster was actually much better at the rhythm of it so that's how the the girl was being defeated and then she she found her power when she found her voice and i mean i say that out loud and i'm like oh yeah okay i see what they did there um yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds incredible <laughs> but then like working working with a student uh a couple of months ago and he was not wanting to write poetry but when we got almost more into the mathematics of it and I talked to him Mm -hmm. about how a line like we can match the beats in a line and that suddenly got a lot it made more sense to him and there are Mm -hmm. so many levels we can engage poetry in yeah yeah and that's you know I think you know what I love that's changing about Australian literature and the way it's taught in schools is that things are slowly opening up to you know to to teachers to be able to say, well, do you listen to rap? And do you actually understand that there are quite sophisticated rhyme schemes involved in, you know, writing a rap and those same things are employed, you know, whether you're writing a sonnet or whether you're writing a rap verse and those kinds of things. Um, And so, yeah, I think, you know, it it can be, poetry can be an incredible tool for literacy, Mm. even if you can't read you know, just that understanding of rhyme and meter and, you know, things like that, yeah. While we're talking craft, if we can just stay on that for a moment because you've already mentioned your collection Foreign Soil and I remember reading Foreign Soil and just marvelling at this extraordinary gift you have for for capturing voice and different voices. Um, I mean, there are moments in your writing where I think, is this is this an overheard conversation that you've transcribed type of thing? <laughs> this is also on full display in How Decent Folk Behave. I just, how do these voices, where do these voices come to you? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I do feel like I'm a bit of a ventriloquist <laughs> when it comes to, to being a writer. I am a massive eavesdropper, so that's... <laughs> that's not a strange thing to think. I've never kind of transcribed a complete conversation, but 
people fascinate me. Mm. And I think when I was younger, when I was emerging an emerging writer, it was almost about not being yourself. Mm. You know, I can be this character for a little while and it's a cool life to step into and then I can step back into my own life kind of thing, you know, almost escapism. Um, but as, you know, I suppose my career's developed, it's, it's more of a kind of people just fascinate me. And so I think in How Decent Folk Behave, there are a lot of poems that are written not necessarily with me as a narrator. Um, so, you know, it might be the narrator and the narrator might live in a particular country community or they might live in, you know, in a city or it might be a teacher or a mother or a grandparent, you know, that I imagine actually saying this to, to someone in particular. Um, and I think that for me, voice is so important. And I think my voice, like, it's, it's boring to have things in my voice all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't say, I, did, I, I feel like you might be falling into the trap of all of us perceive our own voices to be to be boring. <laughs> it's like when people say they first hear their voice on recording, it's, oh, I can't stand it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hear you and I see you though. So uh, as a reader, I, I know what you are doing because when you read, you can sit alone. That's the first thing you're allowed to do. And nobody has to know you're not reading and you're secretly listening in on something fascinating happening at the next table in the cafe. Yes. That's, yes. That is a big thing. Nobody has talked about how the pandemic has taken people watching away from us. Yeah, definitely. And that my, my key space is public transport. You know, mm. I feel like people are so, you know, they're with their friends or whatever and just, yeah, just that people watching. And, oh. and yeah. as, a, as a complete digression um if you haven't already tony birch's um two new collections whisper songs and the other one um listening to thelma plum on the train station is that what it's called yes. yeah yes. just just a great sort of yeah. yeah ode to catching public transport <laughs> yeah yeah it's beautiful um so how decent folk behave deals broadly and in different sections with different issues and i wanted to to maybe jump into a few of them in the poem muscle memory, which is part of the section trouble walking, you get to the heart of, I guess, an, an attitude, the attitude of dominant culture or white attitudes to health equity. And you've got the line, before our well-being could be tangibly tied to theirs, they really didn't give a fuck. And the poem hit me because in my day job, I'm a health worker. And I know it's a fact of even the even the science, I'm going to use square, scare quotes there, even the science of, of the work, the statistics that are used are built on racist stereotypes. They're built on sexist stereotypes. Usually when you've got a study, it's based on uh, a white male between the ages of 18 and 50 because they're the easiest to study. Mm -hmm. And it too often fails to appreciate that not everyone is white and middle class. What did you want to discuss here? What, what, were, what were the themes that you wanted to come through the voices in trouble walking and to talk about this health inequality? Yeah, I mean, definitely a precipitator for that poem was the pandemic. You know, these are issues that I've kind of dealt with as a black woman Africa, of Afro-Caribbean descent growing up and born in Australia, um, you know, throughout your life. And as you encounter the medical system more, whether that's through birth or through ageing or through, you know, whatever, or through having kids, you know, having to take them to doctors, it, it just increases your exposure to the medical system. And, you know, the last poem in that section really is about um, the pandemic and this conversation about, you know, I know particularly I've got a lot of family in the UK because my parents grew up there um, and my grandparents lived there. 
before they passed away. And there's this conversation around, you know, black people won't get vaccinated or, mm. you know, communities, communities of colour all have COVID, you know, they're rife with COVID kind of thing. But not so many conversations about, okay, well, why are people reluctant to go to a doctor and why is it that if the same amount of people from one culture as another go into a hospital, fewer of one culture will come out again, mm. you know, those kinds of things. Um, and so I just wanted to explore that. And it felt feels like, oh, you know, it's a pressure point for that discussion because people are literally dying because of medical racism. Um, you know, so many stories have come out. And so, yeah, it just felt like, and it did feel very much like, I think that's probably the most personal section in the book in terms of being autobiographical. Um, And, you know, sometimes it does feel like I have this platform, you know, I'm at a stage in my career where, you know, if I do write a book, there's a 70% chance it probably will be published. So how can I use this space to actually put that on the agenda? You know, even if it's in a poem to actually talk about something that I think is really important. I, I also noted in Trouble Walking, you kind of hit on the the arrogance of professionalism, the way that um, a prof- uh, like taking adopting a professional posture comes with it a certain sort of arrogance that can be very off-putting. But you do it in a really beautiful way by, by kind of juxtaposing it with a more open um, and caring, empathetic professional and having those two, two characters, uh, I guess, in conversation with the with the main voice, the narrator, the, um, the POV of that really, I mean, again, it's, it's not something I expected from poetry to kind of, you know, challenge me in that professional space. But again, working in that, in the health sector, I, I think we need to be able to listen to voices. We can't just see, see voices um, as, as clients, as patients, they need to be people. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a difficult thing because obviously on the other side, that, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a health professional. So, you know, at the same time as needing empathy and engagement and, um, you know, kind of, I guess, situation-specific remedies for, for illnesses or whatever, um, you know, there are pressures on the health system and there are, you know, people have different, people have different experiences of dealing with. And so, yeah, I mean, I do, I think... When you're writing about difficult subjects, it's sometimes hard to inject hope. Mm. You know, that element of going, actually, it's not all bad. (laughs) You know, there are some glimmers of hope. And I think this book deals with, you know, it's written over the last two years and it deals with so many things that we're currently looking at globally that are difficult conversations. And so, yeah, I think it's important to to offer that hope and to say that, look, this isn't always the case. There are different perspectives. That's it for this great conversation with Maxine Beniba-Clark. Maxine's latest poetry collection is called How Decent Folk Behave. It's out now from Hachette. You might have noticed from the ending there that that is not all of the conversation. This is part one, and tomorrow we will be uh, dropping part two of the conversation with Maxine on how decent folk behave. We're going to get deeper into more of the poems from the collection and explore the themes that Maxine goes into. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We love to hear from you. It was great during Radiothon to have people on the phone, but you can reach out to us all the time on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. 
If you want to email us, I'd love to get an email from you. Email finaldraft at 2ser.com and subscribe in your podcast app. It means there's a new great conversation or if there's a two-party, you'll get a couple every week. Follow us and you don't even have to think about it. It'll just appear every Saturday when we drop it. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be, I'll be back very soon with part two. Until then, I hope you have a happy day of reading. Bye now.